quick programming note because this is hot off the presses for uh, today's conversation. James Lindsay, with whom I'm about to speak, was just reinstated onto Twitter by Elon Musk. We discuss his Twitter ban back on the 8th, uh, sorry, the 5th of the 8th, the 5th of August, 2022. He was banned from Twitter. That was pre the Musk takeover. He'd been talking about groomers, uh, that whole controversy in the United States about whether or not teaching young children about drag queens and transgender people and different sexual orientations is a way of trying to groom them into that lifestyle. He uh, had uh, created the meme hashtag okay groomer. And as a result of that, Twitter booted him off the platform. He had been silent for some months. And then literally today, as I record this on the 22nd of November in Australia, uh, his first tweet back courtesy of Elon Musk five hours ago. Hello, darkness, my old friend. And he follows up with a photo of him at Karl Marx's tomb. And he's pissing on Karl Marx. Enjoy. G'day, humans. This is the safe space for dangerous ideas. And oh, James Lindsay has some dangerous ideas. Maybe not just sort of metaphorically dangerous ideas, maybe actually dangerous ideas. I was a bit torn about going back to James Lindsay, but here's the thing. I'll explain who he is in just a moment if you don't know him. He and I did an amazing interview all the way back in February of 2022. It was almost two hours long. We didn't know each other from a bar of soap. He certainly didn't know anything about me and was expecting me to be a wild-eyed, woke lefty trying to bring him down a peg. He gradually realized I'm a reasonable person, even though I disagree with him about much. And it was a wonderful uh, sort of experiment or insight into the way that two people, like dogs sniffing each other's bums, can gradually sort of come to let each other let their guards down and find some common ground emotionally, if not intellectually. And we lost that interview, or rather the platform on which I record my podcasts lost it. Thanks, Zencaster. So I let time go by. I didn't want to try to recreate it. And then recently I felt maybe it's time to come back to this well. And I felt that way because James Lindsay was kicked off Twitter just before Elon Musk bought the platform. He was kicked off for apparently spreading some misinformation or uh, hate speech about drag queens reading to children in Drag Queen Story Hour. This is something that has exercised James considerably. The question of whether or not we're grooming young people or perverting children by trying to recruit them into a trans or genderqueer or gay lifestyle. I don't think James is so concerned about gay, but about the erosion of the idea of biological sex and that we're using drag queens to do so. So he was kicked off Twitter for that. And most recently, when Nancy Pelosi's husband, the husband of the Speaker of the House, although perhaps not the Speaker of the House by the time you hear this, depending on what happens in the the midterm elections, I'm recording this on the day of the midterms. that the uh, the attacker of Nancy Pelosi's husband was, in fact, a James Lindsay fan. You'll hear me ask James about this. So who is James Lindsay? Well, he's regarded as being one of the leading experts on critical race theory and what he calls race Marxism. He's a former Obama Democrat 
a new atheist. And he has now sort of rebooted himself as, according to Salon, and I wouldn't give much much credence to Salon, but it gives you an impression of where the far left is looking at these things from. According to Salon, the brains behind the far right's moral panic, they say. James came to my attention because he published a hoax paper, paper along with Peter Boghossian, who I've also interviewed on this podcast back in 2017, which was... <laughs> It was an academic paper, which they uh, pretended was serious. And it was called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. And uh, this was a a, a mock satire of sort of post-structuralist discursive gender theory. And the paper argued that the penis should be seen not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. And the paper, believe it or not, was accepted by a legitimate mainstream social science journal called Cogent Social Sciences. And thereafter, James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian, along with the help of Helen Pluckrose, an English academic who is one of their partners in crime, wrote 20 hoax papers, which they submitted to peer-reviewed journals under pseudonyms, uh, and got a lot of success basically making the point that the whole field of social theory, critical theory at the moment, is mumbo-jumbo, that they just make shit up, and even the people who are supposedly the high priests gatekeeping this fall for it. And at the time, James Lindsay was a Democrat. He became critical of woke culture, and in a trend that is not unsurprising that we've seen replicated by other people who were part of the intellectual dark web or the heterodox line of thinking. James has become increasingly, increasingly extreme. I don't think he would mind my articulating it that way. Or perhaps rather than extreme, one could say divergent from the mainstream interpretation of things. Because... He now essentially believes that there's a Marxist cultural takeover of civilization. And his new book is called Cynical Theories. This is not that new, but it's a book out now. It's, I mean, it's been translated into more than 15 languages, so it's been around a bit. But it's called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. He has a new book coming out at the end of 2022, called The Marxification of Education. And I think it's safe to say that James is an incredibly intelligent guy. You'll get that from him. Highly, highly intelligent. Whether that is an asset for him or whether it's a downfall and creates enormous blind spots in common sense, you can figure out. Sometimes there are perils to being a genius. Sometimes it impedes your ability to follow the bigger plot. So this is a very weird conversation, perhaps a rambling conversation, perhaps an aimless conversation. I'm trying to pin him down. And look, I'll get pushback on this inevitably for platforming someone who is associated with far-right extremism, according to his critics. But if you know me and you know this show you'll know that I'm not just sitting here Lex Friedman style, nodding and making, you know, pleasant sounds and putting out anodyne tweets about how the only way to really understand each other is to just come at everything with empathy and thereby allowing bigots to steamroll me. 
the way that they steamroll Lex and other such people. I am trying to push back. I am trying to articulate the most generous interpretation of his view and his opponent's views. So I hope this sort of stands as a moment in time of James Lindsay's brain and the cultural right. And I hope it helps you understand the fears that they have and the worldview that they are living inside because it's kind of a terrifying place. It's terrifying if he's right and it's terrifying if he's not right that he and a large cohort of our compatriots believe what he does. I hope you find this stimulating. The one and only James Lindsay. Do you a vector or are you a pure blood, as they say? I'm a pure blood. You're a pure blood, man. I only encountered that term yesterday when Sydney Watson... Oh. Do you know Sydney, the Australian conservative? We've met, yeah. Yeah. She was uh, tweeting about how hard it was for her to come back to Australia. And I was like, what kind of bullshit is that? Australia's been completely and absolutely 100% free from like COVID restrictions for a long time now. She was like, as a pure blood. I mean, there aren't even any restrictions against coming in if you're not vaccinated, but I guess maybe she there was an airline thing or something. Maybe some of the airlines still want you to show vaccination status. Um, yeah, uh, I haven't I haven't ventured to try to go to Australia. I'm about to take my first uh, international trip in a couple of weeks. Your first since, since the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, not my first ever. I've been to Australia yeah. actually in the past, and I've been uh, to, I've been all over. But um, but yeah, first since the pandemic, uh, London. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was traveling quite a lot during the, the peak of Omicron. I was in New York and Europe in December when Omicron was going off and it was not fun. Like every country would just keep imposing these weird restrictions as I was bouncing around Europe. I'd just have to like, uh, oh, okay, I guess I won't be going to Switzerland then because, uh, you know, if I don't pass the COVID, the mandatory COVID test that is required like 24 hours beforehand, then I have to be quarantined for a week. Or even if I do pass, then they have to check in. And like, there was just such arcane rules just coming and going and coming and going. Yeah, uh, definitely. But yeah. it was My nice. My dad got COVID in June and got quarantined in Iceland. Oh, shit. Yeah. So he ended up, which by the way, Iceland's very expensive. He ended up having yeah. to stay there like three weeks longer than he intended to because of Oof. Man, uh, so since we spoke, when I, when did we talk? That must have been at the beginning of the year. In fact, that would be an interesting thing to establish. Uh, I actually saw it. I tried to open a file. I was looking for a file the other day, and I actually saw where I had dug through and tried to find, you know, when we tried to do the... Uh, yes, you're a good man recovery. for attempting it. February, and, um, yeah. Was it in February? Yeah, nine months ago. Okay. Yeah, I'd actually seen it. It was, you know, I was trying to find an older file that I had opened. And for some reason, it's, in my, you know, oh, it's in my list of all files. When I try to open it in the word processor, it's like, there it is. So in the nine months since, so the general consensus about James Lindsay amongst people who I know is that uh, is very smart guy, uh, started out with reasonable critiques and has gradually careened off the rails into La La Land. <laughs> Uh, That's what I hear about myself. In the nine months since we spoke, has anything much changed? I'm probably further into La La Land. I don't know. I'm not on Twitter, so... 
Yeah. So all what the is... people who are saying that Twitter was what was making me insane can be definitively <laughs> proved wrong. Uh, but you can probably still not because you... I'm more insane than previously, and you I've can still not been on Twitter in three months. Do you not surf it even what from a logged out status? I, I mean, have in the last Twitter. week for two reasons, but otherwise, no, I don't look at it at all. I, I actually I didn't remove the app from my phone, but it took it off of my my you know screen or whatever my home screen. So I don't think about the app very often. I have since this attack on um, Pelosi's husband, I guess, who's also named Pelosi. Uh, and the reason is because I'm somehow in that story. And I, I was just, just saying that. Saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was just saying I don't that. know how I'm in that story. All I know is this is probably why I'm sick because I went to Boston over the weekend for an event and I had an event in Charleston, South Carolina just before that. So I was traveling quite a bit. And obviously that involves sleeping less than one wants usually. And so I was a bit behind on my sleep. And that's usually when you get sick is when you get behind on your sleep and you're around a lot of people. And so I came back to my hotel room my, that night in Boston, Friday night or whatever that was that, that all broke out uh, here Friday, I guess Saturday there. But uh, whenever it was, I came back to my hotel room. It was like 930. We like all were just beat after the, the day of the conference. So we like went and got a, a drink or two as like a group and then went back. I went back to my room. We all called it early. So it was like 930 and I'm like walking dead and I walk into my room and I'm like, finally, I'm going to be able to get some sleep tonight because I have to get up at like six for the thing the next day or 630 or something early. And I was like, finally, I'm going to get some sleep. And my freaking messages are just filled with, did you know you're in the Pelosi attackers website? It's a setup, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't even know about the Pelosi thing. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm so far behind. I ended up staying up till after 2 a.m., 2.30 almost. I had to get up, like I said, just after 6. I think I had my alarm for 6.15, and I changed it to like 6.20 or something to try to squeeze that last little bit of juice out. And so I woke up in the morning, obviously, just devastated with, with exhaustion. And then here we are. Got a cold. It always happens. It always happens. I'll tell I'm you what happens. You, yeah. I'm telling you, man, I've had a million different, like I've had like six or seven colds this year because I travel so much, I think, but it's, it's the, I, if, if you had, I'm not a doctor, I'm not this Huberman guy that everybody's fallen in love with since he went on Joe Rogan and told everybody how to get more testosterone by dipping their balls <laughs> in cold water or whatever. Dr. Huberman, the Huberman lab. Yeah, loves, so I'm not this guy, but if I had to narrow it down to one variable other than direct mm contact with the with the infirm for how you're going to get sick it's that you're you didn't get enough sleep yeah that is, i think that's right i think that's right because i haven't be. been getting much sleep either and now bam i'm hit by this uh non-covid ailment uh yeah, yeah it's it's true. True. that's it's what happens and also even wait i mean i don't want this to become the huberman lab hour with james and josh but uh uh i, I think it affects your weight as well like sleep. when you're trying to, oh yeah, yeah you get can't sleep. You get, you just get chubby. Uh, yeah, you don't get enough sleep. I know that from doing breakfast radio and getting four hours sleep a night. I don't, you know, when you have to get up at four in the morning to go on the air. Um, well, I'll tell you, James. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll tell you what happens when you Google James Lindsay now. So I was oh, just, thought, I just thought, oh, you know, well, I should have a look. Hey, don't worry, it's not as bad as you would have thought. But uh, so uh, the first one, this is a very damning uh, article. This is in the Oxford Mail from Oxford, England. Yeah, uh, Lauren... well, that's actually technically where I'm going, by the way, not just well, London. Well, be careful then, because this says lorry driver in court over Oxford Parkway bike crash 
that killed El Lentam. A lorry driver has appeared in court accused of running down cyclist Ellen Molanen, also known as El Lentam, in a fatal crash. Prosecutors say James Lindsay, 46, was behind the wheel of a Mercedes HGV on Oxford Road, Kidlington, on February 8th when he struck the 44-year-old near the turning to Oxford Parkway Railway Station. Now, was that you? Does it look like it was me? No, the picture looks different. Yeah, well, no. Okay. Uh, I definitely was not involved in that. Uh, okay. I was I was definitely um, not in Oxford then. I haven't okay. left the country since since the COVID started. Okay. Uh, I'm also 43, so unless okay. it's like I time-traveled. Right, or that could just be the Oxford Mail making a, a small mistake. mistake. It's hard to know. Nonetheless, uh, that, so let's put that one aside. Just be careful when you're in Oxford that there isn't a case of mistaken identity and you don't go to uh, the jailhouse for running down a cyclist. And then this, the second thing that comes up is, uh, at long last, Survivor 43 has arrived. Every mm. week, Mike Bloom will bring you interviews with the castaway most recently voted off the island. Quote, I'm not scared of the game of Survivor. I'm scared of never getting the opportunity to play, Lindsay Carmine said. And to make an ironclad majority, Lindsay brought over fellow Pennsylvania resident James Jones. Mm. So the Google has seen Lindsay Carmile and James Jones and gone, James Lindsay. That's what Josh must be searching for. That's also clearly me. Um, Have you ever been on Survivor, the show? No, I just am surviving. Yes. Some would I'm, say I'm in a sense the model for the show, but okay. I've never been on the show. And then after you get through those two, then you get to these things about how the, the individual who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh-huh. as you say, also a Pelosi, had a blog who, yeah. that reads like a jumble of ideas popular on the broader right-wing internet in 2022. The blog features posts, this is from the Daily Beast, claiming that teachers who discuss LGBT issues in classrooms are sexual predator groomers. DePape posted links to videos made by right-wing internet personality James Lindsay attacking drag queen events and other supposed groomers. And then uh, SFGate says that the, uh, the bloke got into all this because of Gamergate a harassment campaign that targeted social justice and women in video games. <laughs> That's Homo- a way to characterize that. <laughs> Homophobic, transphobic, anti-black, anti-Muslim, and anti-Semitic sentiments often accompanied by YouTube clips. And a fascination with Canadian pundit Jordan Peterson and anti-woke mathematician James Lindsay. The latest post oh. on the Wix site, published a day before the attack, was titled, Why Colleges Are Becoming Cults. So now that one is you. Well, I, okay. So this, th- yes, it is referring to me, although he, he misspelled my name. So you can see I looked into this. Okay. Oh. So a few things about his website. First of all, to call it a jumble of ideas is, I guess, a apt description. A lot of people are talking about like all of the content on this site. I actually spent a, uh, since I was introduced to this, the like immediately. In fact, before it was taken down, I was able to go to the site immediately and uh see what was there regarding myself and an archive that had been made immediately as well and so i was looking through it i don't know if you've seen the site it doesn't contain words 
it has like titles of of articles that are sometimes grammatically or syntactically okay but there's no manifestos there's no screeds there's no there's no words there's most of the posts have nothing in them and so i go to my tab i have a whole tab so i go to the tab and you what do i find you have a whole tab on the attacker's website yeah it's wow I'm shocked about this tab. I'm as shocked as anybody. So I go and I see this tab. How many tabs does he have? Uh, Like a hundred. Oh, okay. Be better. Yeah, it's a lot. Five. No, there are. He's not that. Whoever it is that put it there is not that obsessed with me. Um, And there are a smattering. There are there are seven or eight things there. I didn't count, but it's in that it's in that range. And they are kind of this random smattering of podcasts, like just the link to the podcast that I did. And then there's this one about the colleges that I didn't do, but somehow I got filed under me. Um, it's not, I don't know, I don't recall if it has a link to p- a piece of my content, but I have no content by that title. So um, that's something he presumably derived from this smattering. Now, the smattering of podcasts, s- several of them are kind of in the same direction. They are, for example, all of the ones where I call this the, the schools groomer schools. Those four are there. There are four. And then it's like this random, the first one I ever did, which was just an experiment where I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to podcast or not. So I just grabbed a microphone and read this article about um, interior design and bringing, I don't know, equity or something to interior. It's like 15 minutes. Like nobody on earth has listened to this. It's I think our least listened to podcast ever. And somehow that one's on there. And that doesn't make any sense at all. So I don't know what's going well, he on. He might there. like I, interior design. Well, maybe it's, I mean, I'm looking at the stories surrounding the guy and assuming that he does not, um, the interior design is probably not one of his fortes as they say, but, um, you never know. What's this? Uh, so when you say that you, that since we last spoke nine months ago, you've gone further, uh, off the cliff, what does that look like? Oh, I mean, I'm totally not off the cliff at all, but that's what people assume. Although since, since okay, so these kind of tie together. The thing that you just said, right? So you bring up the Google search and the first things that come up are clearly not anything to do with me. And I died, man. You know, like I went on, I, I died. I, yeah. I read eulogies to myself. Mm-hmm. I, I got kicked off of Twitter at the beginning of August and that mm. renders me dead. So I've been much less interesting to people. Uh, but you know, I'm just more and more convinced that the read that I have of the situation is broadly, at least, if not quite specifically correct. And so I don't think that I've gone off the rails. In fact, I feel like it's become immensely clarifying and it simplifies quite a lot, but my, uh, friends will call them and detractors would certainly say that this is just proof that I've gone further off the rails, which is in my opinion, hilarious. Because the thing that they tell me I need to do is get off of Twitter and touch grass in order to come back to the rails. But as I tried to explain to people back then, I maybe even tried to explain to you, Twitter wasn't my problem and it never was my problem. I haven't been on Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I only have looked at Twitter because I I didn't trend, but I came up in the last week. I haven't looked at it since August when I got kicked off. Uh, Twitter was never my problem. If you want to know what radicalizes me, if that's the term we're going to use, it's that I read their books. I read their academic literature and I follow their citations. So if I read, for example, if I read uh, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian Marxist educator of enormous influence in colleges of education. So if I read his book, he cites people like 
Ivan Illich of the de-schooling movement. So I go read Ivan Illich. He cites Karl Marx on whatever about animals. And that turns out to be in Capital, or sorry, yeah, Capital, and also in um, the Economic Philosophic Manuscript. So I go read those. This is all that I do. I read their books. Klaus Schwab's a big player in the whole like World Economic Forum, creepy spacesuit wearing globalist thing, whatever that is. So I read Klaus Schwab's books. And I say, wow, this is kind of some concerning themes that he brings up here. And then I report on those. And that, my friend, lands you squarely in off the rails. And I understand because nobody else bothers to read their books. Well, I don't think the reading of the books lands you off the rails. I think the uh, the interpretation that you get of the nexus between the books and the what is happening on the front line of the culture wars in America today is what gets you off the rails but for, before we go into that before uh, there'll be some a certain cohort of people who've never heard of james Lindsay at all or who are afraid of you running them over with a lorry in oxford uh yeah, so can you uh, don't worry i've never driven a lorry or maybe do if i happen to get behind the wheel of well one, exactly don't rent uh i mean oxford doesn't need any more james lorry james Lindsay's behind lo- the wheel of a lorry so don't I think rent. i was planning to walk to be honest yeah with well you. that sounds much better that sounds much yeah. safer for the res- for all residents of Oxford at this point. Uh, so people who don't know you, what is your, when you say you've been more vindicated in your broad worldview, what, what is your concern? About what? I mean, you <laughs> things are happening in the world. Um, what is my, my, my broad concern in which domain? I mean, they're all related. So I think we could actually, maybe that's why people think I'm off the rails, but uh, we could pick one, I guess, and use it as an entryway. Uh, I think that powerful elite people in the world, uh, not just the respective countries, um, are making a desperate bid f- to uh, establish mechanisms of control for a variety of reasons, some of which are defensive and some of which are offensive, uh, and that they have clearly an agenda attached to that. And that, of course, lands you you know, not quite at ground zero in the conspiracy theory camp, but, you know, not that far away. Yeah. Okay. So to, to flesh that out on a ground level, I mean, I would correct me, tell me if you think this is a fair uh, articulation of your worldview that what appear to be the skirmishes of like woke sort of cancel culture, uh, culture war issues are actually not motivated by a desire for justice on the left and are not just kind of trivial cutesy things that we can argue about on social media but are in some sense the tip of the spear or the tip of a set one of the tips of a set of spears of an attempt to uh would destroy western civilization be too harsh a way of putting it uh to that's not even close to bad enough so yeah that's that's a proximal goal um, What's the ultimate destroying goal? Western civilization or supplanting it is certainly a, f- a fair characterization. Now, the only part of that characterization of my views that you just offered that I would quibble with is when you talked about the motivation of the left, which I want to insist I don't believe is monolithic. I do use the phrasing a lot because we're all lazy and we all say these things. We can say the left, this, the right, that, but these things are not monolithic entities. I think that the vast majority of people who push these kind of culture wars, social justice type issues on the ground, the vast majority 
of them are motivated by a desire to see something that they believe is justice, whether it's social or otherwise. They are motivated by the things they claim to be motivated by. They care about the things they claim to be care that, that they claim to care about. I think that that is overwhelmingly the majority of the people at the ground level. However, when we start getting off of the ground and we start getting further up into these bureaucratic apparatuses, I believe that we also tend to increase in how uh, knowing and willful they are and how much of an agenda there is behind implementing these programs. And so far from saying that I'm off in like insanity land, I could see an accusation that I may be overfigging the pudding. And I have repeatedly, repeatedly said, and I genuinely mean that I hope I'm wrong. Uh, in those regards. Um, but there is some suggestive evidence that I'm not at least wholly wrong. And I can give you a piece if you'd like that Please. I just, yeah. So when I was in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina last week, I was sent a video from the South Carolina Freedom Caucus, which is on their YouTube channel. So you can look that up at some point or anybody can. And they did a sort of Project Veritas-style sting where they ended up getting an education consultant who works with the state and who I don't know specifically who this person is or what her, her role is at this point. I'm not a you know, ground-level operative in Charleston or South Carolina. But this, this recording that they have, which spans seven or eight minutes or six minutes or something, is, is utterly damning of what this woman's talking about. She says, for example, that you know these consultants, to implement things like critical race theory in the school, they are careful not to use the words critical race theory because it doesn't sell well. She doesn't mention that it's actually illegal in the state of Cal uh, uh, South Carolina to implement critical race theory in schools, but she says it doesn't sell well. It doesn't. So she suggests alternative wording. And then she says, in order to facilitate this, we get among the faculty and staff of the school, what she calls, this is her word, co-conspirators who are willing to help us implement this, even if they get in trouble, which means they are, they are knowing actors and they know they are knowing actors to implement an agenda. And if that's happening, and now maybe that's just one school system, but I mean, if that's happening, it's impossible to conclude that nobody involved has an agenda, that they're willing to break the law in order to, and I mean explicitly, break the law in order to implement. So what do you think her perspective on what she's doing is? Well, there are at least two possibilities, and those two possibilities may mix into some unexamined or highly examined blend but at least two, there may be more, there are two jump out to me. And the first of those is that um, she has an agenda, perhaps she's being paid, perhaps she's, you know, in a cabal, maybe whatever, a committee. So this is one of the two. And their goal is to implement this however they need to do as strategically as possible, given the constraints. So in other words, the there are people who have instructed her to do this and that it's very important that she do this in following their instructions. In other words, the conspiratorial, the, the conspiracy, that there is a conspiracy to implement this, that there is a hierarchical structure in uh, instructing people to be involved in it. So that's one possibility. And a second possibility is that she fundamentally believes that the thing that she's pushing is so right, so righteous, so important that it renders the law prohibiting it so unjust that she's entitled to engage in civil disobedience. In other words, to intentionally break the law in order to implement this, this thing that she believes is in line with justice. 
which I'm sure that on some level you have some of that motivation mixed in with whatever else. I mean, if I were going to be involved in a conspiracy of that type, that's why I would have joined it uh, or an activist organization or whatever you want to call it. I guess there is the banality of evil explanation, the ordinary man that's oh, just doing my job. But she didn't sound like she was just doing her job. She sounded like she was very motivated and strategic about what she was doing. So, so let, I me just clar- let me just clarify the, the facts on the ground here. This is a, a woman who works for a school who is confessing in private, she believes, that she Correct. is uh, getting co-conspirators to spread critical race theory inside the school. Those co-conspirators presumably being teachers and uh, like parent activists or something. Yes, among other things, uh, besides just critical race theory, she you know she mentions other of these kind of educational programs and paradigms as well. I mean, so, the, James, yeah. this is what baffles me about you. The the surely the most parsimonious explanation, like the Occam's razor here, and I think the the this is the broad critique of you and your worldview, is that the world is su- super super complex and lots of like lots of different anomalous things happen. And unless we're going to approach the world with the mindset of the conspiracy theorists, the way that they approach, say, 9-11 by saying like, yes, but what about this anomaly? What about that anomaly? What about the people who heard bangs before the plane hit? There's got to be some explanation for that. I think the rational person just rules out the outlier events and goes, okay, let's look at the trend and try to build some kind of a bell curve. There are going to be situations like this where I don't know this woman I haven't seen this video. I can check it out. I suspect that the that if I asked her in her quietest moments about what she's doing, she would say something closer to the lines of, we've been living in a racist society for hundreds of years, a society that was founded on slavery, the consequences of which still haven't evaporated from American society, much as we, we might like to believe that they have. The disparities in wealth and educational outcomes between blacks and whites in America is still stark and needs a more fundamental addressing than the one that we're currently giving it. And the kind of smaller liberal solution of, well, let's just all treat everyone equally has not worked adequately since the civil rights movement. And therefore, we need to go one step further and it ensure that the next generation of children is profoundly aware of the importance of skin color, the enduring importance of skin color in the United States of America. And of course, we're going to get pushback from ne'er-do-wells and from right-wingers and from Trumpists and from proto-fascists about why we shouldn't be doing that and from white supremacists. So in this white supremacist country that we live in, I'm going to have to, yeah, as you say, you know, sort of fudge the edges and, and do a, be a little bit disobedient civilly because the system, the structures, the power structures of the system are never going to condone us getting real with each other about race in America. We're going to have to, to some extent, do it ourselves, just as we had to do it ourselves in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And activists throughout history have always tried to, to do that. So sometimes I do have to sort of bend the rules a little bit to ensure that the future is a, is a more equitable future than the past was. I suspect that that's the most parsimonious explanation of what's happening. And yeah, that's the, category two of the two that I Well, gave. I mean, you were very ungenerous when you were saying like that she sort of believes that what she's, you know, that I what think she's pushing woman, is, has woman, some by the way, I justification. Her, up. Her, name is, her name is Tarika Sullivan. Her, she is a professional development specialist for what's called EL Education Incorporated. Um, but so, yeah, she, yeah, I think that this woman's an activist. And she can be, be, be what you said as it may, that maybe is wholly her motivation. This woman is 
willfully and intentionally breaking the law and leading other people to knowingly break the law in order to teach things in schools that are against the law with other people's children because she believes she is above the law because she's on such a high and righteous position. This isn't working with the law. This isn't working to change right. the I law. Mean, this isn't a civil that's rights not movement. Something I would condone. And I civil civil disobedience, that... you see, if is something you take upon yourself. I decide that some injustice is happening. I go have a sit-in or whatever it is. I refuse to pay my property tax or whatever I do. And I'm should be ready, willing, and able to pay the legal consequence like Henry David Thoreau going to jail for this uh, very famously in Civil Disobedience where, where he wrote down his story about it. It is not something where you decide to break the law with other people's children. Right. Which is what this woman is doing. I mean, and, and like I said, co-conspirators is a word that's difficult to like skip here. So, I it's mean, not... I'm, I'm always loath to do to, to be the whataboutist and be like, well, sure, she's doing bad things, but there are right-wingers all over America who are breaking the law in various ways that would probably escape our attention. The, I mean, that that doesn't justify what she's doing. I'm, I just, we're talking about some vast, almost cosmic level conspiracy to destroy Western civilization. And the first example that you've given me is of some woman somewhere in a video who is admitting that she's breaking the law to try to enact social justice on in her school. Well, she's not just some woman. She's a, the professional development coordinator for a state level education program. And here's the exact quote, by the way. I mean, I could play it and see if it comes through the microphone, but it says in 2022, like you have some people who are really who are sorry, it just disappeared on me. I'm trying to get the the period or the, the play button off of it. Um, where did it go? Sorry. Th that was really crappy of me to do that to you because <laughs> I tried to get the pause button to go off the video so I can read it. Um, so you have in 2022, like you have some people who are uh, willing to be allies, and then you have some people who are willing to be co-conspirators. An ally is someone who says, yeah, that's right. I, I think that's something that this would benefit our students. That's the people you're talking about. It would benefit everyone. Let me know if you need any help with that, right? That's an ally. A co-conspirator is I'm willing to do this work in my classroom, even if I get in trouble and have conversations. I don't know what she means by conversations there because it's literally against the law. And so it's more like you're going to lose your job and go to jail. Wait, uh, what aspect is, of this is against the law, James? Now I'm confused. Because South she, Carolina passed like a might... statute prohibiting the teaching of critical race theory in the state. Got it. So it is against the law in the state of California. Or sorry, I don't know why my C's, it's probably because I have a cold. It's definitely not against the law in the state of California. It is against the law in the state of South Carolina and however many other states in the United States to teach these things. They have passed an explicit statute on this issue. Uh, so she's explaining in this part of the video how to get around that statute. Um, and I, right. I agree that she's probably motivated by the what you called parsimonious four minute explanation. Um, but I don't think that that's adequate to... Um, living in a society where we have rule of law, which is she decides she has the right to circumvent because of a what amounts to literally a racial conspiracy theory that matches nothing that's happening in reality. 
this society that we live in bends over backwards and kisses its own balls from behind to incorporate minorities, racial, sexual, and so on into fucking everything. I mean, I'm serious. We, we, if we could not bend over further backwards if we stuck our own heads up our asses eight feet to accommodate and elevate and center exactly the thing she says we're doing nothing to, to elevate and center. So I just, that explanation may be her motivation and her heart of hearts, but in practice, it doesn't wash. And it's also literally an explicit violation of law. Now, granted, this is just one example of something happening that suggests that, well, no, it doesn't suggest, it proves that there are people who are knowingly doing something that, that is against the law to implement change. That since she works for a huge organization that pushes for this to happen all over that state is certainly at least organized to do so. It doesn't prove a global cabal and I didn't intend it to. For that, we would have to read from like say Professor Klaus Schwab in his The Great Narrative book or his The Great Reset book or his <laughs> Stakeholder Capitalism book you know, or whichever other. When I listen to, if I listen to the audio book of Klaus Schwab's uh, books, what I want there to be is the option to have James Lindsay reading it in a bad German accent. Oh my God, would that not the be the best? Why don't you do that and release it as a parallel audio book? Reads by Hans Gruber. Just putting, <laughs> like... putting the top spin on the, uh, on the kind of uh, sinister Germanic accent the whole way through. Um, the... And it should just have an image of him in the spacesuit, which is What's just space beautiful. Suit? It's okay. This isn't totally fair, but I mean, holy shit, look at the thing. It's actually the graduation or like, you know, like academic regalia. They have like the robes and their funny hat from like 500 mm. years ago. There's yeah. some, I think it's in like Lithuania or something. There's some university that that's their academic regalia. An, an alien spacesuit? An alien spacesuit. And they gave Professor Klaus a one of his PhDs <laughs> or something like this or an honorary degree. I don't know which degree, but they gave him an honorary degree. So he has to wear the spacesuit when he does anything academically with them. Right. Um, which, if you're going to head an organization that looks super shadowy, is one of those things that when you put the spacesuit on and there's pictures of you and videos of you in the spacesuit, people yeah. are going to be like, what the hell? Is if people already suit? think that you are someone who comes from another ideological planet in order to take over civilization, it's not good to have photos out there if you're wearing a, an alien spacesuit. Yeah, whoever it is at Central Casting that was like, let's get Dr. Evil and put him in a spacesuit yeah, was yeah. really not I mean, on the ball for, the, so, for this choice. Let me just wrap up the in a little bow the uh, the the parsimonious explanation of that woman's offense. Uh, I appreciate your uh, comment about parsimony, but I, obviously I mean that the kind of Occam's razor. I'm talking about not the fact that it takes four minutes to explain to you. people who don't who don't have an understanding of the social justice mindset what the social justice mindset sounds like, but that it, the whole over the whole landscape of culture, there you can go around cherry picking items and forming like a you know a the serial killer's wall that's pinning the, str the pinning string connecting the all of these dots to create a vast complex machine of conspiracy or you can chalk it up that's what i mean by the parsimonious explanation the kind of occam's razor explanation of the simplest explanation is usually the best explanation that culture is complicated and some people will sometimes do slightly untoward things in order to uh, try to achieve their vision of the good and I mean, your criticism of her boils down, it seems, to two things. One is that she's breaking the law. The second is that she's unjustified in her beliefs because America bends over so far, it's kissing its own ass to, to pander to the kinds of things that she wants to achieve. 
I mean, on the on the point of doing something that's against the law, she lives in a state that has passed a law about what can be what can be taught. Now, she clearly regards that that's an unjust law. I know people in Australia who, like you, are pure bloods who broke the law, you know, in terms of lying about things during the pandemic because they regarded the the vaccine re- restrictions as being an unjust law. They went into shopping centres they weren't allowed to go into, for example, by taking a snapshot of someone else's QR code on their phone to make it seem like they were vaccinated when they weren't at the peak of the pandemic before we were all vaxxed. Uh, I think that, I assume you would agree, is a morally legitimate thing to do, that sometimes if there are unjust laws that you're allowed to you're allowed to bend them if you think that you're living under tyranny. I'm not saying that it's right for her to do what she did, but that's the simpler explanation than that she's getting orders from on high from somebody or that she's part of a part of a wave that is going to overrun the West. And as for it being unjustified, yeah, I mean, you can argue all day about how extremely woke American culture currently is and like how much more do they really want but they would retort with, well, the Supreme Court is as conservative as it's been in generations, and you have a, a right-wing party that they regard as being obsessed with populism and conspiracy theories about elections and so on, and that the Republican Party of Reagan and the 1990s has disappeared, and that that needs fighting back against. I'm not saying any of these things are, are right or wrong. I'm just saying that I see the... Uh, this kind of apocalyptic style of your worldview as being closer to your opponents on the far woke who think that America is irredeemable and everything is like going to hell in a handbasket than it is to, I suppose, centrists like myself. But what's wrong with yeah, that? You see, the, the unfortunate aspect of conspiracy theories is if they are conspiracy facts, they still involve conspiracies. And therefore, to relate what might be conspiracy facts by necessity appears that you're relating conspiracy theories until such time as said theories are proved as actual conspiracies in a court of law. Yeah. But that court of law moment doesn't come until quite late in this story. Uh, And this woman isn't just some woman. Again, she's the coordinator for this organization that operates at the state level in the state of California that represents a larger educational program called EL, I forget what EL stands so for. So let me, let, just so we don't get problem. too into the weeds of her, James, when, when, yes, she's irrelevant. When the That's actually of, the point I wanted yeah, to Yeah, so, yeah, good. So this what does it look like when this, when probably, this conspiracy unfolds to an extent that Josh Sepps actually comes, comes around and goes, holy fuck, James was right. That's not going to happen. What is that? <laughs> well, I hope you think, I hope you understand that I'm rational enough that I'm going to judge things on, on the basis of the evidence as I see it, as I see it. I mean, they will. I mean, it, the lady that just asked for COVID amnesty has uh, unapologetically data-driven on her Twitter bio. So I'm a little hesitant there, but. Wait, the, the woman who's worked, who's asked for Twitter, what? Emily Oster, who wrote the article that said, for The Atlantic this week that said, can we have COVID amnesty? saying all the things we said, all the terrible stuff we did, all the things that the evidence is now showing were probably really bad. Can we just have amnesty? Because we had, you know, high, high minded intentions or whatever. And it turns out that her bio says unapologetically data driven. And so I, I'm not real encouraged when people tell me that they follow the data anymore, because I don't know where they're getting their data. Fair enough. You don't. You don't have to take me at my word. Maybe I'm going to be an, be irredeemably woke until uh, even as I'm I being burned in the gas so. in the You're gas nice chambers. Guy. What would the What would this world look like 
uh, what, for you to feel like, yes, now I'm finally, no, not, not for you to feel because you already feel like you're vindicated. I feel like you have oh, yeah. quite a lot of self-certainty <clears throat> for the average reasonable person to realize that James Lindsay was right. What does that look like? Well, I mean, I hear this. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hashtag. I hear this a lot that James Lindsay was right. Um, I don't know what would convince any given person. I mean, I spend a lot of my time recording podcasts that I think I hope will reach people in that way. For example, reading, I just did a four part series. Half of it has come out on my website, which is newdiscourses.com. If anybody wants to go there, shameless plug or whatever, but it's, it's called the, the series is called the strange death of the university. And it's a document. I'm just reading a document and of course, adding color to the canvas in my unique style, which makes it well within not plagiarism or whatever. Hopefully just, a German just, accent as well. Well, here and there, maybe. Um, depends on what I'm doing. But uh, in this case, this document's from UNESCO. And I don't know which accent I have to adopt for UNESCO. I think UNESCO was actually largely created by an American by the name of Robert Mueller. Uh, he, he didn't head UNESCO. He was the uh, assistant secretary general of the UN for a number of years. And I think he helped with the project that spun off UNESCO. UNESCO is United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, by the way. And so earlier this year, sometime this summer, they published this 100-page, I guess, white paper. It has lots of colors on it, but um, saying that it's time for the higher education. It's, it's about transforming the higher education institutions of the world. That's explicitly what the title is, like transforming the higher education institutions. First sentence is transformation is the red thread that runs through all of the sustainable development goals. That red thread thing's a little cute. Um, second thing in there talks about how it's time for us to revisit the Marxist Herbert Marcuse in his book, One Dimensional Man, and keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the document. And then the rest of the document is that it's time to reorganize higher education institutions so that their uh, mission statements, in fact, are rewritten to adopt and promote and achieve the sustainable development goals of United Nations Agenda 2030, which is one of those things that sounds very conspiratorial, uh, except that it's all over their website and they put out these papers about it. And um, they go on in this document to say that they're, they're absolutely, you know, there's going to need to be sustainability officers put into different, you know, on all the universities. They're also going to have to issue doing any kind of research that supports unsustainable practices. They explicitly name that there should be no research done to, that could be used to support the fossil fuel industry. Um, and they say that we need to rethink of knowledge. We need to abandon the old model and think in terms of what they call transdisciplinarity, where now they, they explicitly say that that's where the arts, humanities, and social scientists will work in committee with the natural scientists, and the natural scientists will be required not to look down their noses at them, but to take their suggestions seriously. And then in the, the third chapter is explicitly about creating in room in the natural sciences for other ways of knowing, which are necessary to achieve the sustainable development goals. And uh, we already see indications from UNESCO as well, but also other organizations that this veering of the purpose of education into the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030, which sounds very conspiratorial, is kind of the direction they're bending these things. And so I put out pieces, of, I bring this up because I put out pieces of evidence like this, hoping that people such as yourself will say, holy shit, that's weird. Why is that happening? and then start to do their own looking into it to try to find out. I don't actually expect people to take my interpretation. I expect them to go look into it for themselves and then come back with hashtag James Lindsay was right. So UNESCO has been around since, I mean, when the UN was founded. So UNESCO has been around since 1945. 
Um, yeah, thereabouts. It's headquartered I think it's in France, in I think. 40, so I'm, I'm not sure yeah. what what I'm not sure what Bob Mueller was doing in uh, 1945 in Paris, but uh, let's assume that he was involved somehow. Uh, why is UNESCO important? I'm just looking at. I just googled the budget of UNESCO. They have an annual budget of about 750 million US dollars, including needed fund ra- fundraising. You know, um, so that's the it, budget of a small. Of a, that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a small U.S. department, government okay. department, seven hundred fifty million dollars to try to promote cultural and educational diversity globally. Well, I mean, Do you think like the, the United entire Nations comprehensive is... sexuality education program that's being implemented in literally every Western country in the world was a UNESCO project as well. So UNESCO has an outsized influence in in setting tone and policy and direction. Um, but again, the, the thing that I put out this evidence is I'm trying to tell people like, hey, look, this is going on in very large organizations with the backing of the United Nations. In this case, um, we can read through white papers from the World Economic Forum, from the OECD, from USAID. I mean, you look at this kind of like pantheon of these, you know, large institutional organizations at the top of the pile and you find extraordinarily consistent messaging that is extraordinarily consistent in um, becoming policy. So here's a moment where we could set up a stage for Josh Seps to come back and say, holy shit, James Lindsay was right. Great. If it's a major push in education, say a year from now, that we're going to really work on the sustainable development goals of the United Nations through education, then perhaps it would be a good time to say James Lindsay was right. Well, no, because I already agree with that. I mean, so I'm think, already right about that part. Well, no, you're not right about the, there being a globalist conspiracy which is filtering down from uh, the United Nations into my local New South Wales. Uh, I mean, the world is full of lots of different influences, right? So I'm not claiming that the New South Wales Board of Education or the Board of Education anywhere, well, we call it a department here, but whatever, that they are insulated from the existence of uh, advice that are, that emerges from global organisations and from you know their peers who are experts all over the world in institutions, people who are devoting their lives to thinking about what education should look like in the twenty first century, in order to combat the biggest challenges that we face as they see them, being things like climate change and global equality and justice and fighting poverty and things like that. From that perspective, uh, you're going to have certain recommendations about how to tweak education so that it's not so burdened by big sort of biases that it had had in the you know 19th or 20th centuries, um, which may be biases towards who knows uh, a traditional patriarchal kind of capitalist white male interpretation of the world, and that and and this pushback against that vision of the world that old vision of the world is might be something that you james Lindsay, see as a big conspiracy to try to derail civilization but the people who are doing it might be expert educators from academic institutions and non-government organizations all over the world who sort of collaborate on trying to think about what education in the future will look like and Uh they're sort of drinking the same kool-aid to some extent so i agree with you that the kinds of things that UNESCO is putting out about what education should look like are very likely to be running in parallel with and in some kind of a feedback loop with the what bureaucrats and teachers and academics are thinking teaching should look like in the 2020s and, and 2030s. So I, I don't think that it would be chalk one up to the overall James Lindsay 
conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theory. Well, you see, that's the problem with, with, with labeling something conspiracy theory is even if the conspiracy were proved as fact, you'd still say the theory's wrong. That's what the Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it is a bad, ter- look, it's a bad term, conspiracy theory, um, because you're right, there are, it, it sort of demeans uh, an explanation needlessly. <coughs> Excuse me. There's my COVID that's not COVID again. Yeah, so the question um, then becomes for you is, is what would it take for you to be convinced that I'm right? Well, I'm not sure what your thesis is still. Uh, the, the incentives that are causing these things to happen are coming from people who are setting those incentives up and that they have an intention. They have an agenda. They have a goal. And they aren't doing this willy-nilly, and they're not doing it merely because I don't even think they're doing it merely because this is what you've said is my thing, and I nodded my head, which you can't see. Uh, they aren't doing it merely because they think it's the best thing in the kind of big picture of the good. They're doing it because they think it's the best thing for the system that they wish to put in place and be in charge of. Yeah, that's a good that's a good distinction uh, of you of where your worldview and mine differ. I don't think Klaus Schwab's in it for the good of humanity. Frankly, I don't think he is. Yeah, um, I'll, I will. I think Klaus Schwab is in it for the good of him and people like him, whom he's networked with for fifty years, who have screwed the pooch royally with the with the financial system of the world, defrauded ninety nine point nine percent of the people. And are desperate to make sure that that doesn't blow back on them. And if they can just happen to set up a new system using a digital kind of platform of society as the means and mechanism, very much like has been rolled out in China over the past, say, decade and a half, uh, then all the better. And I don't think that they're even shy about this. Players like Larry Fink say markets love authoritarian behavior. We're not afraid of not just nudging, but forcing behaviors. And I don't think that this is at this point even controversial to point out that these people very, very blatantly have an agenda that includes in literally their own words, forcing behaviors. I mean, I would love to talk to you about a left-wing critique of these exact same cabals, if that would make you feel more comfortable from a man named well, Ben Williamson. Well, let, let me just give you one. I'm happy to happy to get to that. Uh, I think it's. I think what you said is really useful in um, the articulation of their worldview as being that something that even they don't see as being for the greater good, but that they see as be, that they understand as being something that is for the good of they, of them and their cohort. Um, Which, by the way, it, I will give them this piece of credit. They believe that is the greater good. In fact, that's the that's only what I was. Good. That's what I was just about to say. I mean, you're reading yeah. my mind. I think we all. We all do a bang up job of articulating the interests. I mean, and this is an old Marxist principle. In fact, one of the things that Marx got right was to point out that every each class and each group identifies its own interests as being universal. That we always try to pull this. We always can't help but pull this kind of psychological trick on ourselves. That it's very convenient to note that the the beliefs of the people who you go golfing with and who are at your country club just happen to align with what is best for for everybody uh and so I, I think that's to some extent a distinction without a difference and that we're all kind of playing that game but on the question of whether or not that is likely to lead this cabal of people to impose authoritarianism on the rest of us i'd, I'd love your thoughts about one vast counterexample, vast for me because i live in australia and this is so the the authoritarian imposition that has most deranged 
my life over the past few years is the response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little more than 12 months ago, 14 months ago, I was locked inside. Uh, well, not literally locked inside, but, you know, I wasn't able to go to work and I was only allowed to go to the supermarket for a certain number of hours per day. And I was only supposed to be out walking for a certain set of reasons that the government uh, would allow me to to go outside for because we were scrambling to get vaccinated and the the first really the first wave had finally hit in terms of there had no there had never been an out of control community spread of coronavirus at any point during the pandemic until the delta wave which was just before the vaccination campaign so we spent over 100 days in this state um, and at the time, you'll recall, there was a lot of shrieking about how Australia has fallen, and perhaps not unjustly. I mean, Tucker Carlson said that this is the end of Australia. Australia is no more. The country of Australia, as we understood it, doesn't exist anymore. It's not It's not a democracy anymore. I mean, the um, description you just gave of it was pretty screwed up, man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was... That it was, was straight a, up pretty dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is from, look, I'm not going to get into that argument now because I've written a lot about it. I've spoken about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. I've been back and forth with, uh, with people online about it. I'm actually just writing something about it now for an American publication, looking back on it. And I mean, I was published in the main newspaper here in November of, of 2020, uh, or it may have been December, saying we need to have a serious conversation about what hap- what just happened. This was after um, after the restrictions were lifted. So um, do you mean in it, Australia overall or locally, like New South Wales? Uh, in New South Wales, locally, it was a state based thing. So this was uh, this was in New South Wales and Victoria. Okay. Um, but so were, was it the Sydney Morning Herald? Because I just want to make yes. The, I just wanted to make the opportunity to call it to shake my head. SMH. For a long time ago, it was SMH, and it just cracked me yes, up. Yes, like, I was in. I'm like, I what was the published. hell are people putting this link to SMH? Shake my head. Shake my head. And I was like, That's no, this is actually slang. important. Good job, Australia. So, if you Google SMH Zeps uh, COVID or something, you'll get my article, um, which was pushing back on this. Um, now, the claim at the time was not just that that was fucked up, but that this was your kind of prophecy coming to pass that there is no way i mean majid nawaz went on joe rogan's show a few weeks after i went on and made the point that these things are not temporary health restrictions these are a permanent imposition of laws that will never be removed in full Uh, and his experience having been imprisoned in egypt where emergency decrees were introduced and then never removed has led him to believe that emergency action by governments is always uh, a thin edge of the wedge. It's always just a way to open the door a crack to an impending totalitarianism. And I was worried as well, like, and I still am worried about the, the lack of oversight of what it takes to call an emergency decree and the, the location, the locating of that power in just the person of the health minister. There were all kinds of things to worry about, about, uh, checks and balances in the Australian system uh, that have been revealed by COVID. But one thing that hasn't happened is that any of those rules have outlived their purpose. Every single well, restriction. Well, even just mild things. I mean, some people, many, many people 
would like there still to be discrimination against unvaccinated people, for example. Many, many people would like there still to be rules about masks on public transportation. We're currently entering uh-huh. another wave of COVID here because there are these new sub-variants that are going around, which is my producers currently got it. That's why I thought I have it at the moment. Um, and there is no response. There is no response in terms of, you know, mandating the number of people who can be in a you know, a venue. I mean, there is no response in terms of requiring you to wear a mask on a bus. There is no response in terms of requiring anything. The only rule that still exists is that frontline healthcare workers who work for the government have to be uh, vaccinated. That's the only remaining rule at all around COVID. Unvaccinated people can come to Australia. Like, if ever there was an opportunity for the cabal to get its little claws in and keep some of them there, it was the biggest public health crisis of our lives and all of the attendant impositions that they were able to impose on us. Why, in your worldview, have they all evaporated? Well, that didn't work. COVID COVID didn't work. Omicron basically wrecked that, uh, besides the fact that the pushback was getting untenable for them to maintain. Um, there is, I don't think there is a, and now I know in Australia that a lot of people are still very much in favor of, you know, doing silly things like wearing masks that don't do anything to prevent COVID transmission. Um, which we've by the never way, been I don't big maskers, can, by the way, we, we, have, we, didn't get on, we didn't get on the mask bandwagon until well after Americans did. And we got off it. Uh, yeah, that's become more the, the of masks a, were fake news. And even our CDC here in the US said that they were fake news right up until the pandemic began. Even Fauci was on. I got kicked off of uh, one of them, Facebook or something for like a month for posting a video of Fauci saying that masks don't work right when the pandemics first broke out. Hmm. Like it was, I didn't put any words. I literally just put the date. That was my entire set of commentary, like April, whatever, 13th or March 25th or whatever it was, 2020. All I put was the date and it was Fauci saying masks don't work on the pandemic. You know, no shit. They don't work. Um, Okay, so anyway, but this that's point. Well, N95 masks do work if you're the one who's infected, but we don't need to get into a big if argument Yeah, about and you've that. strapped it on just... your face, right? And yeah, yeah exactly. Lots of ifs. Yeah. Uh, and certainly not, and see in the US, the big problem is with children. Um, yeah, we've never masked, uh, we've never this, masked children. Way. We haven't closed schools the way that they did in the States. I mean, yeah, you know, let, me, we, let me just... We, we can go back and I'll, forth I'll on do... this, but, the, but part of the justification for having a very COVID zero approach in the first place was that we were actually able to live much more normal lives throughout the majority of the pandemic with kids at school and people still at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were in, in places where the pandemic was constantly, uh, you know, wreaking havoc before vaccines existed. But sorry, well, whatever on. we did in the US was completely fake news. They're masking kids, which are the cohort least likely to benefit from masks, most likely to be harmed by masks, etc. They even just gave guidance for our Halloween celebrations that children should be able to wear their costumes to school, but not a mask that covers the face because it hinders learning. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Like no uh-huh. sense of awareness yeah. when they said it. But this isn't no, part totally. of my worldview. Part of my So what's the explanation of my worldview for why they did this? So first of all, you said you think they would put their claws in and leave some in. I bet you they did. I seriously suspect that they did. As a matter of fact, you probably have a lot of digital infrastructure for tracking and identifying people and knowing where they went and where they go and how to, how to do that than you did before. So they probably did leave a lot of the crucial stuff. I don't know what's going on in Australia with regard to passes, with regard to you know tracking individuals or the technology capacity to do that with digital ID. Well, we um, create. There, there was. You're right that there is a there was a system created where you would have to check in using a QR code. 
in order so that the, so that contact tracers would be able to uh, to get back to you if you'd been a close contact of someone who was uh, who was infected. So that although that's a voluntary system in the sense that it no longer exists, and so as long as I'm not scanning anything, it's not doing anything, and I don't there's no like app on my phone that's tracking me around. You're right that I suppose you could if you wanted to be generous to your perspective, you could say that that is one claw that exists in the government's arsenal, but it's not a claw that's being deployed. It's not a claw that uh, exists in daily life now. Well, it's good to hear that, but the point is really to, I mean, the means to build out and get adoption of an architecture. Uh, it's like, if you build a house, you don't keep whacking it with a hammer when it's there. This is the difference between poetic and, uh, and practical construction, poesis and praxis, the two, two modes of, of creation. Um, when, when you're done with a poetic construction, you put, or when you achieve the ends, you don't continue with the means. When you build the house, you don't continue with a carpentry. To become a carpenter, however, you continue with carpentry so that you can, through practice or praxis, become a carpenter over time. So there are two different modes of, of where the, the means and ends do align and don't align with creative activity. Uh, so there, in, in, within my perspective, I don't know, and I don't want to over over diagnose what's going on in Australia, but I would suggest it's likely that a lot more claws are there and that the COVID was a means that's not necessarily the end. Um, and so those control apparatuses were built in ways that they did not exist before and the cover of COVID allowed it. But more broadly, the explanation for this so-called counterexample from my perspective is that COVID fell apart as a impetus. So when we read Klaus Schwab, who publishes a book in 2020, in June of 2020, very, very quickly into the pandemic. Now, I write books very quickly, so I know it's possible to do these things. He has his own publishing company, Forum Press or whatever for the World Economic Forum. So it's easy to publish quickly as well. Uh, it's a little suspicious timing, but he, he says very, very clearly, and he said this on television, he said this in interviews, he said this a lot of places, he said this in writing, it's in his book, that COVID-19, the pandemic, represented a narrow window of opportunity for a very specific thing that I just can't make sense of. I can see that it represents a very window, a very narrow window of opportunity for a lot of different things. But one of the, the thing he specifically says is for reinventing our entire economic system. What the hell? Why? 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 Why would you do that? Why is that the thing? And so when the Omicron comes out and everybody in the their mother gets not very sick very, very quickly and ends up having kind of this highly enhanced immunity that that even infection with the original with alpha with delta didn't confer for some reason so when omicron comes in whether you know eru ilavata or whatever like nudge this thing into the world to change the course of human i don't know what caused it omicron comes into existence it changes the whole calculation the arguments that they had and the mechanisms they had become completely untenable then there is not a country on the earth with the possible exception of either australia or new zealand that would accept those measures under the auspices of a variant where the there, there's there's no reason whatsoever to get vaccinated with the previous vaccine, which is all they had, future formulations notwithstanding. There was no reason whatsoever to get vaccinated for a variant that the vaccine couldn't protect from, which is what the case is and was with Omicron. So no, it, it gives point, a bit of protection. It doesn't give the same amount of protection. It gives significant protection against uh, against disease and death. It well, is it give... a bit or is it significant? Uh, because I those are very significant. different. Uh, significant. And that's a data driven question that that remains unanswered. 
No, it's um, not unanswered. It's, it's not unanswered when you look at the when you look at the death rate uh, in places that had high vaccination versus low vaccination. But I'll take there your are, point that the there original are very vaccines... credible challenges to those data analyses. The... Um, but at any rate, well, just at I mean, any you rate, just look country to country at the death at the death toll. You can look at the fact. I mean, the they purposes... were saying this about Delta, for example, and then Australians got vaccinated at a very high vaccination rate and end up having. 90% fewer deaths, about 10% of the death toll per capita than the United States because our first because big waves... Because you didn't waves... send your old people back to the nursing home? <laughs> our first big waves happened after everyone was vaccinated, even though it was the Delta strain, not the original uh, strain. But uh, I take your point that if you don't want uh, authoritarianism, then so, so, you don't well, want like... any any encroachment I just, it just feels to me like i don't think that the that the that the delta uh, the sorry the pandemic controls were ever meant to be permanent in the first place they were all levers to achieve either whatever right, but their lots goals and of lots of people are, who sounded no like you about. were saying that they would be well no 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 i don't, did not think that they would be in the direct sense the central bank digital currency with a digital id and a social credit system is the goal and you need a mechanism to get not children because you can just do that through the schools but adults on the digital id program that is the end and that's the end i've always looked at now what majid caesar doesn't see i'm not majid i've talked to majid once i like majid but we're not the same guy um the point in my estimation of the relentless campaign was in fact to create the vaccine passport program which became politically completely untenable once Omicron came into the world. Even if the medical information says it is tenable, it was not politically tenable. People would have burned buildings down before they're going to put up with this crap at that point. And so I think that they were unable to deploy the vaccine passport due to a number of reasons. And then the uh, public mood around COVID, the narrow window of opportunity <laughs> slammed shut. And they couldn't recreate the systems using the social credit system that requires a digital ID, that requires the uh, currency buy-in that they were going for. So in other words, I think that COVID-19 was a pretext in order to be able to, in, to put authoritarian tools in place. And they got partial buy-in on that, but not sufficient buy-in. And then their window of opportunity to continue to use that pretext wore out. You said that you said earlier, James, that the the timing of Klaus Schwab's book is a bit suspicious, uh, coming out so early in the pandemic. Do do you mean it's suspicious because he might have known that the pandemic is coming, because he helped uh, create yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially given the um, scope of the. Um, the recommendations that he's making, like literally transforming the entire world. Um, this seems like a pretty bold claim to be making that quickly, but th there's, I mean, another no bold claim would be that because someone published a book very quickly after the pandemic started, that means that the pandemic was man-made and that, that well, well, that's not what I said. I've been making it. I didn't say any of that though. What I said is that this is Sorry, the timing that's what was I was suspicious. And then I said, suspicious. If you recall, if I may, I said, I write books very quickly. And if he's publishing it from his own press, which is called the Forum Publishing, which is in the World Economic Forum, that's the Forum and Forum Publishing, it is possible to do something this quickly. So I did actually leave room for that. So we'll start Yeah, you there. did. But, but, that, yeah. the, but then but, why would no, it so be the, suspicious? The reasons to be suspicious, though, aren't necessarily just that COVID-19 dropped in, into the world the way that it did, which, by the way, I didn't say it was man-made. Uh, there. It could have been a perfectly natural thing that took off due to intention by accident or that was contracted from the wild. And seizing 
the chaos as a ladder, if we might quote from the philosophical work Game of Thrones, uh, <laughs> seizing that chaos as a ladder to en enact a pre-planned uh, agenda is a completely different thing. So having the agenda pre-planned on the opportunity, it's like earthquakes, right? When's an earthquake going to strike San Francisco next? Nobody knows. But imagine you had this plan that you're going to say, well, next time the big one hits, we're going to do this. And then the big one, you know, the big one's coming sooner or later, and you just may have to bide your time for, you know, six months, a year, 10 years, yeah. 14 years. No, I get that. But you said they knew you, that. I mean, you, you hear this the all the time. You know, swine flu happened in 2000. Was it nine? Like a big pandemic was coming again. Yes, but I'm just clarifying. So they, I'm just clarifying the suspicious thing. I said, I well, said, yeah, did, you look did you at like suspicious time. You know about the event 201? Hang on. And there was just, another I, one. I just, just want to put an end. I just want to put a full stop on this because I just want to clarify. Is yeah, it yeah. Do you know? Timing. Hang on. Is it suspicious timing because he might have known that the pandemic, that this specific pandemic was coming because he was playing a role in it being released, or is it just suspicious? I don't have reason? enough information to say that he knew this pandemic pandemic was going to be released. He didn't publish it till after it was already out in the world, and at least three months into the official recognition of it, which we now know. It may have actually been floating around months before that, uh, maybe as early as October or November the previous year. Um, so I'm not saying he manufactured or released the virus. I am unequivocally saying that he took advantage of that. And I think that his it represents a narrow window of opportunity to transform the world's systems is sufficient proof of that claim. Um, that such a plan to take advantage of a pandemic that is, let's say, a mildly deadly uh, highly contagious coronavirus was literally wargamed in October 2019 under the auspices of Event 201, which took place at Johns Hopkins University using many of the players. I don't know that Klaus Schwab was in the room, but certainly Bill Gates was. Um, many of the, the significant players that are kind of implicated in this so-called cabal and whatever else that they did. I don't know that they released it. I don't know that it was man-made or intentional. I know that I, I hesitate zero to commit to the fact that they capitalized upon it, capitalized upon it very fully and capitalized upon it to enact very um, suspicious, a very suspicious agenda that they had war gamed out in advance. Uh, mm. And I don't think any of that's that's I don't even think that's controversial to say if you just know the facts of what they did. Event 201. October 2019 at Johns Hopkins. There was another one before that was a clade something. I don't forget clade X or something like that. They did a, another war game with a uh, with another virus. It wasn't uh, a coronavirus. I mean, I was I was before. I was actually pretty familiar with with some of this stuff because I'm I'm a bit of a science wonk. As uh, um and when I was in when I was living in New York and working at HuffPost, uh, I did some events with a man who has now become a bit of a a, a bet noir on the. On the right, I don't know if you, I can't remember his name, but the vac, there's a, damn it, it was during the Ebola outbreak. And you're completely right that everyone war games for scenarios that they think are going to happen. Like, I mean, you know, right now, the Australian and US military are installing B 52 bombers in northern Australia and war gaming a Chinese invasion uh, in this part of the world uh, over, you know, in, in the expectation that at some point China might do something on Taiwan and we'll be in a full-scale war. Uh, that sort of thing takes place all the time. That doesn't mean that the Americans are creating a war between China and Taiwan. It means that they're preparing for what will happen after the tragedy happens. And 
<clears throat> I was involved in sort of reporting on some of these uh, contingency plans, essentially, that were being put in place in case something like Ebola um, broke out. Uh, now, I'm not saying that some people won't do that planning in a nefarious way. I'm sure they do. I don't think the people who are planning to manipulate those events in order to destroy Western civilization are the ones who have the loudest voice in the room or are the ones who are uh, who are ultimately going to win. But you and I can, can disagree about that. Uh, because I have COVID, I don't have as much time as I had hoped that I would because I'm not yet at uh, in my office. I mean, I don't have COVID because I thought I had COVID. So I, wanna, I want you to start giving recommendations about what people should do. Like, let's take as a given that the world is the way that you see it and not the way that I see it. Yeah. When people are confronted by cancel culture, wokeness, uh, I mean, take it where you will, drag queen story hour, I mean, any of the things that people think are superficial culture war things, what are they really and how should they respond to them? I I mean, those are kind of different things. I think they're mass lines of action is the correct term for them uh, in a broader push that my my term for this is neo-communism. I don't want people to mistake it for you know, Lenin or Stalin or even Mao. It's an updated communist model. Uh, they are mass lines of action that have strategic agendas that are meant to, whether it's destabilize individuals, destabilize family structures, upset culture, overturn institutions, or whatever the goals happen to be for each individual mass line of action, uh, I think that they should recognize them for those things, which means I think that they should study a little communist history and strategy. They should read people who are communist defectors like Dr. Bella Dodd in her extraordinarily lengthy testimony to the House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities, which is not what Joseph McCarthy was part of, by the way. That was Joseph MacArthur was a senator. That was the House. Little American politics there. Um, <laughs> Thanks like, for the tip. For F's sake. Uh, but no, she testified. At, I mean, it's absurd how long it is. And then Manning Johnson testified. Uh, he was a, a black man that was being used by the communists. He was a communist himself. Uh, but then he was being used by the communists as well. So Manning Johnson gave testimony. He also wrote a, a couple of books. Read some of these these pieces about the strategies. Um, and I strongly encourage people, though, to look at what's happening, to read primary source materials, and to get together with people and discuss, to try to figure out what's going on. And what they have to do in terms of practicality is that they have to not only organize and share information with one another, but they also have to start getting involved locally. They have to keep their wits about them to the best that they, the best of their ability, but then do things like run for county commission, run for the various uh, public offices around the county or city or even state level, run for school boards, get involved, ask your children what they're learning at school, ask to see their homework. You know, these very simple, basic kinds of civic engagement that we had kind of abandoned as societies, plural, uh, to the telly for a number of years, probably we should start undoing that. Start having family dinners again. Start talking. Like, I just listened to a guy give a talk. He's an educator in California. And he says when he talks to his students, one of the biggest things that he hears, he says, well, you, what, you know, he never hears them bring up their families. They never talk. My mom said this. My dad said that. Well, my dad said this thing about the Civil War or whatever. They never, never comes up. And he starts asking him, you know, well, what's dinner time look like at your house? And it's, you know, 
mom and dad, we throw some stuff in the microwave. I go to my room and eat. My brother goes to his room and eat. We watch our computer, play our mm. game. And my mom and dad make their thing and they sit on the couch and watch TV together. We don't talk. You know, start, start getting involved with your families again. Just very basic stuff. It's like what, what the kids call touching grass, but in the kind of not literal go outside sense, that's good too. Um, those are the kinds of things that I think people should be doing if the view that I have of the world is correct. Um, because I mean, those are the things that not, people should be doing, like even you, if your view is incorrect. Uh, Josh Sapps or whoever else is not going to, let's say that you fully agreed. And you're like, oh my God, you have a conversion moment tonight and you're in my cult now. You're not going to stop Klaus Schwab. You're just a dude. Like you can podcast about him. You can write about him. You can get it, I, eyeballs on. You're not going to stop him. You're just a dude. So what you need to do is thinking about how you're going to, you know, network in your community, make your communities healthy, make your families healthy. And this isn't a kind of advice that it doesn't matter if I'm wrong. So what? You still win. Um, but it's actually some of the most powerful antidote to the slow drip poison that I perceive being uh, loaded into our society at the moment. Do you feel bad about the bloke who kid? I mean, about quote unquote your role in that? I mean, I sometimes wonder the kid, the Pelosi thing. Oh yeah, like, I well, sometimes you know, wonder what the relationship kid, is between. Uh, he's yeah, uh, but, you know, I bet there's something if, wrong with that guy. Yeah, but of course there is. But I mean, when you when you talk about the influences that people have and the people, when you go back and you read these texts that people, are, you know, that are, that are underpinning the sort of takeover that you're fearing, the everyday henchmen of this conspiracy are just our colleagues and our co-workers and our family members who think that they're doing the right thing because they're following the social justice trend that they think is correct but actually they're being puppeteered by bigger ideas people and so i sometimes i'm conflicted about the nexus between people who create ideas and then crazy people who go and do their bidding is there any relationship yeah. between your ideas and the pelosi well attack? i don't think so because i was on his website i mean personally i understand what you're saying and i, I get it um in this case no i think the dude's nuts i'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that this dude that the stories that people that knew him that are coming out that have testified that they square up pretty good he's on some kind of he got on some kind of a drug bender something didn't go right he came back he thought he was jesus for a while right like, but this the content guy's... of a person's beliefs matters i mean kanye's bipolar but being bipolar doesn't make you an anti-semite the thing you that you choose to cling to is the thing that sure like that's the but if you look thing, at the guy's right? website, for example, jihadists are nuts. But you need, you know, you need jihadist writers and thinkers in order for them like, to be doing what they're doing. Right. Well, I see on this guy's website, in addition to this like odd smattering of podcasts that I did, and then one thing that I don't even know how, why it's in my thing. But in addition, he has an entire uh, section devoted to like religion, and he has like Jesus is the Antichrist. I don't think that that's a view that I've ever espoused. Um, he's pretty far down the Q rabbit hole. I think that if I might use a word that tends to get people canceled, I think Q QAnon is retarded. Um, that is my chosen word for it. Uh, and I stand by that word. Um, why? So, why provoke like that? Well, because it's, uh, I mean, I, I just speak that way. And if people hate me for it, I don't care. Like, it doesn't bother me. That's like, that's the word I'm going to say. And when the microphones aren't on, that's the word almost everybody says. And that's probably not going to get changed. 
I mean, we all get worked up about the R word. Nobody gets worked up about idiot, which was literally a designation of retardation when they invented the word imbecile. Definitely was also a literal clinical category. Nobody worries about these things. This is manufactured outrage that nobody should care about. Well, do you still um, say the end, the actual N word when you're talking about the N word? I actually said it on a stage the other day, but it's the first time I've said it in a very, very long time for any purpose because the taboo has been pretty heavy. Um, so people can watch the talk. I actually said it. It was it was use. Uh, what is it called? I don't remember. I didn't use it. I, I remarked that this was the word that was used for a thing. Yeah, of course. A um, hundred years ago. But the syllables came out of my mouth. And um, so it goes. And so, OK, it. that means um, that you're a white supremacist, James. That's what I've heard. You've just admitted um, it. Yeah. And did you know I have a black friend that was there and he said that was hilarious afterwards. And so this makes it even worse. Falling I'm back even... again on the black friend excuse. I know. Which makes you more of a racist. Totally. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it kind of is stupid. You shouldn't have to. It's just a friggin' word. I think that destigmatizing words um, while remembering what they re represent, like the taboo, not destigmatizing, detabooizing a word actually steals it of undeserved power. Yeah, I mean, um, I've, long, I've, I've long made the point about this saying that the, 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 the time at which America is no longer obsessed with like saying the N-word instead of actually saying the word is not going to be a time when America is more racist. It's going to be a time when America is less racist. Correct. You know, when everyone can I, just I say the word because completely. it doesn't have any sting in its tail, this will be a less that's, racist that's... world. Especially when it's a descriptive use, you know, like this word appears exactly like this in. Of the course, book of if everyone's Huckleberry going around Fan calling each other, you know, calling black people the n words, then that would be a more racist America. I mean, it would be a less racist America if you can just say, "There's this horrible word that we don't use any word and the, anymore, and the word is this." Yeah, uh, well, just calling anybody that where you use the a instead of the hard r, apparently that might be less or more depending on the context. But that's beside the point. This guy, I also want to bring this up just as a point. This guy had a whole huge ass section on his website. It was real weird to religion. So I clicked on it to see what was in his website. And it was all about like all these weird memes. Like there's no words on his website. It's just weird memes and like YouTube videos and uh, of other people's, not his own. And so there's all these weird memes about like Gnosticism. Well, like literally I've dedicated the last half of a year, maybe whole year of my career to studying Gnosticism and complaining about Gnosticism and being against Gnosticism as a, as a religious thing. And so whatever the degree of influences on this guy were, they seem to be pretty eclectic. And I don't actually know where I fit in because a large number of them are diametrically opposed. That's why we got off on that tangent anyway, because we're talking about QAnon. Diametrically opposed to things that I espouse or uphold. In fact, I'm a little bit glad that there's a voice of sanity mixed into the whole thing, frankly. Uh, maybe you laugh at me calling myself a voice of sanity. But this was an argument that I gave to Helen, who obviously, Helen Pluckrose, who wrote Cynical Theories with me. Helen is outright a leftist. She is openly a leftist. She's an unabashed leftist. Um, she's not ashamed of it. I'm not calling her a name. I'm not putting her down. I'm putting no shade on it when I say this. It's just a, a, a descriptive fact of the woman. And... Um, she was very worried when we wrote cynical theories that right wing people would like it. And I was like, don't you want them to hear the arguments that somebody like you would make? So they enter into their heads and they ponder them and consider them. She's like, no, I don't want the I don't want right wingers to like it. I don't want them to read it. I was like, no, Helen, you, you definitely don't want them to stay in an echo chamber. Hmm. And so, okay. But I mean, this is beside the point. This dude's just nuts. This dude's like, 
broken nuts. And Okay, well, he probably would have benefited from going out and touching the grass. I'm glad that you were advising people to go out and touch the grass, which is is the correct thing to do whether or not James Lindsay's worldview is true. Uh, we should all be having dinner with our families and going outside and climbing trees more, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum. I hope you do uh, more of that, James. Why don't we, uh, I'd love to, we'll just touch base every nine months as you go careening off the cliff and I'll see, yeah. uh, we'll see, we'll see who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. Next, next episode can be James Lindsay was right. James we'll Lindsay was right. Episode. Hashtag 2023. Thank you, James. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. It was a good call. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.